0: Thank you, Doug, for that prayer this morning, and we're going to let that prayer lead us into our Bible study for this morning, and I will be sharing with you from John chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 20. John chapter 13, John chapter 13 and verses 12 through 20. Last week, we looked at that important passage in John chapter 13, verses 111, and this is the same scene. The same scene with Jesus and his disciples that follows right after that. And we read in verses 12 through 20 of John chapter 13, when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord. And you are right. if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, our first point this morning is an example to follow. Last Sunday morning, we looked at one of the most extraordinary acts of love and humility found in the Bible. If you recall, I shared with you that John MacArthur said that the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus is the most extraordinary. Act of humility and love found in the entire Bible except the cross. Except the cross. John chapters 13 through 17, those five chapters that we are now looking at in our ongoing study of the gospel of John, are a precious part of the New Testament describing the depth of Jesus' love for his followers. He knows he's going to go to the cross. He knows that the cross is going to be excruciating for his disciples, and they need to know that he loves them. And he loves them to the very end, and he's going to love them beyond the cross. He's going to love them into all eternity just as he loves us. Last week we saw in verses 1 through 3 the majesty of Jesus, the Lord of glory. In verse 3, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Jesus was mindful, fully cognizant of the fact that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, fully aware that he is the ruler of the universe, fully aware that he is the creator of all things, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is fully aware that he has just spent the last three years demonstrating that he is God, that he is the Messiah, that he has caused the lame to walk and the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He has just spent the last three years rebuking and casting out demons. He has just spent the last three years causing the winds and the waves to obey his very voice. And it is so appropriate, thank you Pastor Mike, that we sang Behold Our God because this is the God who rose up. This is our Jesus. And we saw in verses 4 through 11 last week that he lowers himself to the place of a servant, the lowliest possible house servant, and washes his disciples' feet not even a common man or woman would have washed someone's feet at this time. It would have been considered humiliating and embarrassing to wash someone else's feet. But it says he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And we learned last week That this is not just an, or this act is not just about the washing of feet, but it is about salvation. It is a great symbol, representation of what salvation is. In verse 8, Jesus said to Peter, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. If you do not come to know me as Lord and Savior, if you are not cleansed by the blood of the Lamb, if you are not forgiven of all of your sins through an act of receiving me as your Savior, then you have no share with me. But after that, after you are washed then all you need to do is have your feet washed on a regular basis. The one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, Peter. And we learn that once we come to know Christ as Savior, we don't need to be saved again. That is a one-time act in our life. We take our bath. We are cleansed of our sin, if you will, If you will, we take a bath, we're cleansed of our sin, we're forgiven of all of our sin, but then we just need to have our feet washed. On a daily basis, we need to confess those sins that may hinder our relation with God, that may hinder our relationship with our fellow Christians and with other people. We need to confess those sins, those secret sins that are hidden in our minds and hearts that we haven't, that we are secretly keeping from God and others. So we're washed once, but we need daily cleansing. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to keep on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And then last week we learned that this is, excuse me, we learned that this whole scene is preparing us for the cross. It is preparing the disciples for the cross. It's now preparing us for the cross. This act of love And sacrifice and humiliation is going to lead to the greatest, the greatest act of love and sacrifice and humiliation when Christ gives his life on the cross in our place for our sins. And I tell you all of that because we need to review this morning in order to understand today's passage. In today's passage, we see the master teacher, Jesus himself, use his example as a powerful, teachable moment for his disciples. And what a privilege to see the greatest teacher who has ever lived or whoever will live teach his disciples. And he says in verse 12, or it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done for you. And by means of the Holy Spirit through the Holy Scriptures he asks all of us this morning the same question, do you understand why he washed his disciples' feet? Do you understand why he humbled himself in that great act of love and service? In verses 13 and 14 he says, "You call me teacher and lord, and you are right." For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. If your master did this, if your Savior did this, if your Lord did this, if your teacher did this, then you ought to follow And do the same thing. You ought to be willing to lower yourself. And wash one another's feet. You ought to be willing to do. Any kind of humble. Act of service and love. For your fellow believers. And even for those. With whom you want to share the gospel. In verse 15. Is such a key verse this morning. In verse 15 he says. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. I want you to take special note of those words, for I have given you an example. Jesus is not saying that every disciple of mine in every age needs to wash one another's feet. This was the example that he used for them because the washing of feet was very important in that culture at that time. So, Jesus is not instituting an ordinance for the church to practice on a monthly basis, but rather he is giving us an example so that we might do as he did in lowering himself in humility and sacrifice and love. I loved what one writer said. He said he's not giving us an outward act. To repeat, but he's giving us an inward attitude that we should always have. And I think that's exactly right. He's not giving us an outward act to follow, but an inward attitude that should always be ours in whatever we do. Every single day, in everything we do, we ought to be willing to humble ourselves. Let's let me give you an example. Let's say that there is a United States senator could be a him could be a her but well, we'll just take a him for example there's a United States senator he's a christian and in his state there's a large metropolitan area like a chicago or a detroit or a houston or some really large city and one of the in one of the poorest areas of that urb urban setting, in one of the poorest neighborhoods, there is a Christian community center. And that center has for years helped young boys and girls in that poor neighborhood to take classes, to have food, to have clothing, to be involved in athletic events. But they've let it run down. It's become dilapidated. It's No one's caring for it. And like many politicians, he could just throw money at it. And he does get funding for this community center. But then he decides with a group of people to go and do something about it. And so you walk into that community center and you go into the bathrooms and there's that United States senator on his knees cleaning the toilets, Mopping the floors. Painting the bathroom stalls. And you think, that's ridiculous. Why don't you just hire someone to do it? Why did not you get somebody else to do it? He's a United States senator, but he wanted to show that he cared for those kids. So he lowered himself to this humiliating task to demonstrate how much he loved them. Folks, you could give dozens of examples like that. That's what Jesus wants us to do. For the glory of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. As I shared with you last week, never think you're too good to do anything. Never think you're too good to lower yourself for any service. For the sake of Christ, for the sake of his glory. In verse 16, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Even as Doug prayed this morning, don't ever think you're better than Jesus. Never think you're too good. If our master did it, let us do it. Let us have that same kind of attitude as he had, a willingness to humble himself to do anything he needed to do in service of others. And then another key verse is verse 17. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Not only is the right, is it the right thing to do, not only is it following in the footsteps of Jesus, but he promises a blessing. That if you humble yourself in sacrificial acts of love, willing to do anything in service of, of others that God will bless you amazing if you know these things blessed are you if you do them the word blessed there is the same Aramaic word that's used for bless in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 it's the same word you know where Jesus says blessed are the poor in spirit blessed are those who mourn blessed are the meek blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and on and on It literally means happy, a happiness from God. Happy are you. A happiness will come inside of you that will bring joy, that will bring a God-given fulfillment. If you will, a kind of excitement, the thrill of knowing I'm obeying God. I'm doing as my master has done, as he has commanded me. A kind of serenity and peace that can only be found from God, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. You know, the Bible is filled with, and I think especially of the New Testament, just filled with these commands to be humble, to be broken, to be lowly. That's to be our attitude that deacons and elders, when we're together are working through the book of First Peter and just Thursday night, we saw these two verses in First Peter. First Peter 3, 8 and 9. It says this, Finally, all of you, all of you, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Wow. Is that the model we want to follow? Is that what we're striving for in our lives? Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind, not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary. And here's that word again, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you also should do, just as I have done to you. Well, that brings us to our second point. Our second point is a strange encouragement. Knowing that he is about to go to the cross, Jesus encourages his disciples by focusing on Judas and focusing on the mission that Jesus and the Father have for them. So it's so interesting It's so strange that he encourages them by using Judas as an example and then telling them about the mission that will be theirs beyond the cross. In verse 18, Jesus says, I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, he is speaking here of Judas Iscariot. Now, if you were with us last week, and maybe you weren't, in the context, that is very apparent. Because in verse 2 of this chapter, Jesus, or it says, During supper... When the devil had already, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, and then in verse eleven it says, "For he knew who was to betray him." That was why he said, "Not all of you are clean." So it is obvious here that he is speaking of Judas, and he said, "But the scripture will be fulfilled." He said, "I'm, I'm not speaking to all of you on this." I know whom I have chosen. Remember, and I covered this last week, Judas is there. Judas is getting his feet washed. But Jesus says these overt things about Judas. I believe so. Judas hears them. It's given one last chance to repent. Next Sunday morning, my entire message, or almost, The entire message is going to be about Judas. There are some powerful, important lessons we need to learn from the tragic life of Judas Iscariot, but that's next week. But he says here, I know the twelve I have chosen. Jesus went up on the mountain and prayed and then came down and chose the twelve. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. He's quoting here directly from the Old Testament. He's quoting from Psalm 41, 9, where David writes, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Now in Psalm 41, David is writing about a man named Ahithophel. Ahithophel was one of David's most trusted advisors, But Ahithophel later betrayed David. There was a point at which David's son Absalom tried to take the throne from his father. He betrayed his own father, separated from him. And he went and tried to set up his own kingdom in opposition to his father to destroy his father's kingdom. And Ahithophel, instead of staying with David, went and followed Absalom. He completely betrayed David. And David writes, even my close friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, one of my most trusted friends and advisors, has lifted his heel against me. That term, he has lifted his heel against me, is actually a military term from the first century when hand-to-hand combat was prevalent. Actually, it goes way beyond the first century. It goes way back to the original hand-to-hand combat that military soldiers would engage in. And to lift your heel against someone was, if you were battling with an enemy and you wounded him and he lay on the ground, you would lift up your foot and you would take your heel and you would jam it into his neck to kill, kill him. It is a very violent, brutal term. You would take your heel... Crush the neck of your opponent who was already wounded. And David says, this hurts me so bad. What Ahithophel has done. That it's as if he has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus said of Judas, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Again, we're going to look at that more next week. But verse 19 explains why Jesus says this. Jesus says, I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I am telling you right now that someone among us is going to betray me. And I personally believe the disciples did not know who it was at this time. But he has said it, and he's going to say it again. Someone among us is going to betray me. And he wanted them to know that. So that in the future, actually it'll be the same night. When Judas comes to the Garden of Gethsemane and gives Jesus a kiss of betrayal, that the disciples won't say, Oh my, Judas is going to ruin all of Jesus' plans. And they won't say, how can he be the Messiah? How come he didn't know that Judas was going to betray him? Why would he choose someone that he knew would betray him? And then they'll remember, Jesus told us he knew this was going to happen. This was actually all part of the plan of God. Judas is completely, 100% personally responsible for his actions, but somehow in the sovereignty of God, God knew this, and it was in the plan of God for the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus. And so he encourages them, I know this is going to happen. I'm telling you it's going to happen. And then he encourages them by telling them about their mission that will come beyond the cross in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Oh, my disciples... I want you to know, no matter how difficult the cross is for you, in the future, you are going to be my ambassadors. You are going to be ambassadors for Christ. You are going to be so much a part of me and my kingdom that the one who receives you receives me, the one who receives your message the message of salvation is receiving me and the one who receives me is receiving the Father. You're going to be part of the greatest mission ever conceived. When you give the message and they receive me as Savior, it's as if they received the message from me. It's as if they received the message from the Father. And he wants to encourage them. And again, I want to go back to verse 15. For he says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. As we close this morning, I just want us to think about this. The life of Jesus has always been and will always be the most important example for us to follow and imitate. The life of Jesus is is the most important example it always has been and always will be there is no better example than the example of jesus and i want to say this to all of us be careful who your heroes are be careful it is very much innate within us to look up to certain people it may be a sports hero Could be somebody in entertainment, man or woman. Could be a political figure. Could be some great preacher. Boy, I love that preacher. I listen to all his sermons online. But I say to you, be careful. Be very careful. Because often, those heroes betray us. I think of just a couple of examples within the last couple of years. I think of Ravi Zacharias, I think of Joshua Harris, and if you don't know who those two men are, it really doesn't matter, but they're examples of this. Ravi Zacharias was a great evangelist, and apologist in Christianity. We used his materials here at our church for years, and when he passed away, it was exposed and found out that for a long period of time he had been involved in multiple extramarital inappropriate sexual actions, discrediting his ministry. Joshua Harris, oh, I can remember years ago when Joshua Harris was like the wonder boy of young preachers. So many people, people in our church, looked up to Joshua Harris and the books he wrote and the sermons that he preached. And a year or so ago, he announced that he had totally abandoned the Christian faith, no longer believes any of it. But in a sense, folks, it shouldn't surprise us. They're just men. They're just men. And I know it's popular in some Christian circles today to have historical heroes. Oh, my hero is Charles Spurgeon. Or my hero is Jonathan Edwards. Or my hero is Martin Lloyd Jones. Or my hero is Susanna Wesley, or my hero is Amy Carmichael. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. There are things we can learn from them, and there are things we can admire about them. But be careful. You know why we like historical f- heroes? Because we really don't know everything about them. And it's probably a good thing that we don't. So be careful. I want to challenge all of us here this morning. Let Jesus be your hero. Let him be the example that you follow. Study him. Watch him in the scriptures, the gospels, the New Testament, what's said about him in the Old Testament. Let him be the example that you want to follow. Let him be the hero that you look up to. The Apostle Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1. He said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Good for you, Paul. You know what Paul was saying? Only follow me as I follow the example of Christ. Don't. Don't follow me if I'm not following the example of Christ. Don't be following me. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. If we think back, and I know many of you here are old enough to remember, but we think back to the 90s. Oh, the 90s. Lots was going on in Christianity back then. But there was a very popular phrase back then. It was actually the rebirth of a phrase that was popular in the late 1800s. And it was the phrase, what would Jesus do? It's actually found in the book In His Steps by Charles Sheldon. Charles Sheldon wrote that book in the late 1890s. And there was kind of this rebirth of it. And it started out as a very sincere question. What would Jesus do? To ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And then it became a wristband, WWJD. Many of you will remember that. Probably many of you had one of them. A WWJD, you know, wristband or bracelet that you wore. Then it became a whole line of clothing. It became, unfortunately, very commercialized and then people were wearing WWJD who weren't even Christians who didn't even know what it meant and it just kind of faded away. Understandable. Understandable. But I want you to know this. Still a good question. Still a good question. To ask yourself in every circumstance, every decision, even every thought, what would Jesus do? I've shared this with you before, but in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard says, it's a great question, what would Jesus do? And I'll take it a step further. He said, ask yourself, if Jesus lived my life, how would he live it? If Jesus worked at your job, if he lived in your home, if he was in your community, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus live your life? It's a great question for us to ask. Now, we know you're not saved by following the example of Jesus. You can't follow the example of Jesus in your own strength. We know that. But if you are saved, if you do know Christ, then you should be following the, the example of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. You should be asking yourself, what would Jesus do How would he make this decision? I want to say this in a special way for our young men and women. If you're here this morning and you're in your late teens or you're in your 20s, it's a great time of life. It is. So much before you. And I can remember those days. They were a long time ago. But when you're that age, you want to make an impact in this world. You want to do something important with your life. You want to, in a sense, change the world. And, and, you, and you're so idealistic. And that's good. It's a good thing. It's good for our nation. It's good for our, the church. But I want to challenge you. If you really want to make a difference in this world, if you want to have an impact on this world, then try to follow in the steps of Jesus. Study him. Study him. Fall in love with him. So, fall so deeply in love with him that you're constantly asking yourself, I wonder what he would do. I wonder what he would say. Let Jesus be your hero and you will make more of a difference than you've ever imagined. Jesus said, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. If you know these things, If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the perfect example of Jesus. Help us to obey his command that we too are to love others with a humble and sacrificial love. Cause us Father, cause us to be faithful ambassadors for Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.